Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. If you haven't noticed, we've been in Isaiah for a couple years now uh, with a few little breaks, but I I pray you guys have been blessed by going through the prophet. Uh, I know I have. I've learned so much, and it's funny as you go through, you're like, oh, that's where that verse is from that's quoted in the New Testament. I think Isaiah is one of the most often quoted uh, books from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So um, I'm excited to, to finally get through this and, and complete it, and I, again, I pray that you've been blessed by it. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Giving to God, which is reminds me of, as I was talking with Mindy this morning about Christmas um, and giving, you know, obviously at Christmas time we give gifts, and there's always that person in your life that you're like, I don't know what to give them, you know, they, they have everything, or they're hard to buy for, whatever the case may be. And as I was going through this, this text this week and, and thinking about this text, it's like giving to God. What can you give to God, right? I mean, he has everything. What more could God ask for if he's the creator of all things and he does all things and he gives us all things? And what can we actually give God uh, in a way to say thanks or impress him, so to speak? Well, that's really kind of the question that God answers in this text this morning, which is why I called it giving to God. Uh, and this isn't a, a message on giving financially, so don't worry about that. Uh, this is actually, uh, as we'll see, this is a conclusion of, it's really a summary statement of all that's been going on in the book of Isaiah about worshiping God properly. And what could the nation of Israel give to God that is right? And so that answer we're going to answer this morning and by way of application for you and I, if you think about what could I give God, what would please God, um, what is right for me to give God? And, and I hope that you'll see that in the text this morning. So let's go ahead and begin uh, in Isaiah chapter 66. Let's just read the first few verses where God's message to his people, again, it's really an answer to their religious practice in the way they have been worshiping him. And as you've been following along, you know they often are criticized for their worship of God because it is not from the heart. It is what we learned very early on in Isaiah, which is rote, or it's just familiar. It's what we are supposed to do if it's in the context here. If you were from the nation of Israel... You know, we're Israelite, we're God's people, we're supposed to go to temple, we're supposed to offer sacrifices, we're supposed to uh, uh, celebrate festivals and new moons and holidays because of the people we are. But does that make God, does that make you acceptable to God because you worship like that? Again, this is what God is going to answer in the text. And so God says this, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So he starts off by saying this, basically everything in this world is mine, right? I own it all. And so he asks them a question. He goes, where then is a house you could build for me? 
And where is a place that I may rest? In one sense, he's saying, there's nothing you guys could give to me or uh, like a home to contain me. Like, hey, Lord, we built you this big tabernacle. Or, Lord, we built you this big church. And God said, well, I'm bigger than that church, so to speak. Where could you put me or confine me to? Again, what could you do for me since I'm the God of everything? And he goes on to say in verse 2, For my hand made all these things. Thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. So God's telling them really about his sovereignty, how big he is. He owns all things. He does all things. And what could you do to please me, Israel, he's saying. And thankfully, God gives them the answer. And this is actually going to be the application as we go through it for you and you and I. What could we give to God? I mean, does God need our worship? Does God say, you know what, Robert, I need you. You're like the, the best preacher in Southern California. I need you up there preaching. Or you're the best worship leader. You're the best youth leader, whoever it may be. Or you have the most money, and I need that person in church to give. When God says, no, I own all things. I've created all things. I don't need anything. So, and he wants Israel to realize that. He wants you and I to realize, realize that as well. And so this is his answer. He says, but to this one I look. Or it's another way of saying, but this is the one I, I pay attention to. This is the one that pleases me. And here's the answer. It's three parts. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Again, those are going to be the three points of application. And what can you give to God? He's telling the nation of Israel. And again, by application, you and I, what can we give to God? Because my preaching, your worship, the worship team singing, and all the workers that work within the church, we offer our services to God. But that pales in comparison if it's done for the wrong reason. And he says that here again in verse 2, but this is the one to the one I look, or the one I regard, the one I notice. To him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and trembles at my word. And so we're going to go through these three, spend most of our time here in, in explaining what does this mean. What does it mean when God says uh, to the humble, or that he wants his people to be humble? He wants the nation of Israel to be humble. He wants you and I to be humble and obviously, it's the opposite of somebody who's prideful, right? Who thinks that, you know, they're the best. They're God's gift to whatever the case may be. The word humble actually means poor or afflicted. Poor or afflicted. Again, in comparison to the magnitude of who God is, He wants you to come recognizing who you are. You're, you're small. You're afflicted in comparison to God. And those who recognize this are the ones that God approves of. It, it, the example is this. It's like a, somebody who is poor, begging on the corner, realizing that they have nothing to give the passerbyers, but that they need something from those who pass by. And you and I this morning need to realize that. And the nation of Israel, God is calling them to realize that, is that you need to understand and acknowledge that you are so poor and afflicted that there is nothing you can do for God. There's nothing we could give to God. Again, that's what he stated at the beginning. My 
Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you could build for me? Pastor John MacArthur, uh, in talking about poor in spirit, has this great quote that I think really says it a lot better than I can. He says, the poor in spirit, uh, to be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. To see oneself as one really is, lost, hopeless, and helpless. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence on God. That's what a poor person is, right? They recognize they have nothing and they need somebody to provide for them. They have nothing to give. And this is where God wants each and every man and woman and child to begin is to realize that you can do nothing for God. And that's the first point. This is what God wants us to give to him, an acknowledgement that you can do nothing for God. And if you hear that, you're like, well, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, again, this is the problem the religious Pharisees always had with Jesus is because they thought they were something. They have something to offer that nobody else has. And, and that needs to take place in our heart as well. That we need to realize that we can do nothing for God. Nothing to gain God's approval, so to speak, except to acknowledge that fact. A matter of fact, two chapters uh, prior to chapter 66 in um, Isaiah 64, this kind of summarizes this point. He's, Isaiah, obviously speaking uh, on behalf of his people, he says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a, weave, a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's somebody who realizes how poor or how humble they are before God. So the thing that we can give to God, church, you and I this morning, is a humble spirit. Again, an acknowledgement that we can do nothing for God. And it starts right there. Again, the nation of Israel was struggling with this over and over again because they thought because they were God's children, they could do things that would please Him. So when they worship, they go, oh, this is pleasing to God. And, and we'll see why it wasn't in a few moments. So that's number one. What you can give to God is, is humility, a humble spirit. Number two is the second thing that Isaiah says here in verse two is a con to be contrite of spirit. A contrite spirit. It's similar to humility, but the word contrite actually means to be stricken or to be lame. And a good way of thinking of this is if you remember uh, Jonathan's son in, uh, in first, second, uh, first Samuel 4, 4, Jonathan's son had a, a crippled leg. And that's the same word used here of a contrite spirit. It's, it's realizing that you're crippled in some sense. Spiritually, each and every human being that lives on this earth is crippled in spirit or lame in spirit. It's the recognition that you have no ability to help God, right? A crippled person can't help themselves, let alone help somebody else. And that's the idea behind having a contrite spirit is you need to acknowledge that you need God's help. God is the one that needs to pick you up and move you around. 
A great example of this point and the previous one is in the Gospel of Luke. And you can turn there with me because it's, it's a longer section that I want to read. And I, again, it summarizes these first two points, the humble and contrite spirit. So in Luke chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 11, let's go there. Hopefully you have your Bibles or your phone on. Those of you that have your phone on should find it a lot quicker than those of us who are old school and, and actually use a Bible. Luke 18, verse 11, it's the story or the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. This is what Jesus said. It actually started in verse 10. He says, two men went into a temple to pray. One a Pharisee, who's the religious leader, and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. He prayed like this, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's probably pointing at the other guy right next to him. I'm glad I'm not like that guy. That's what he's saying. I fast, and this is where he brags about himself. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, excuse me, but the tax gatherer, tried to put gatherer and collector together, but this tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. So you get the picture. So the, the Pharisees probably standing, hands raised, looking to God, you know, feeling really confident. And the tax gatherer is face down on the floor, not even looking up to God, realizing again the spirit of humility. And he says this, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So those are the two prayers. One, bragging about himself, how religious he is. The other saying, Lord, just be merciful to me because I'm, I'm a sinner. That's contrite in spirit. And Jesus concludes by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And so I really think that story epitomizes what Isaiah is saying here in Isaiah 66. That's humility, a contrite spirit, realizing that I can do nothing for God. I need, and matter of fact, I need God's help to do anything. So those are the first two points. The first two things that we can give to God, again, are a humble spirit, and a contrite spirit. And this is what Isaiah uh, is telling them for the Lord. Lastly, the third point of what we can give to God is this. Look at the last point in verse 2 of the text in Isaiah 66. He says, And who trembles at my word? And who trembles at my word? Basically what this is saying is that the thing that we can give to God is, is, a, is a desire to follow Him. That's the one who trembles at God's Word. They have a, a sensitive or a, a desire, a longing to obey God. They're not the person that goes, well, can I do this and still be a believer? Right? You may have heard that before. Hey, is it okay as a Christian if you do this, Right? Or maybe you have friends that will ask you, can you do that as a Christian? Or can you do this as a Christian and still be okay with God? Somebody who trembles at God's word doesn't live like that. Matter of fact, they, they say, 
How much can I do, or what more can I do to obey God? That's the difference. What more can I do to obey God? I want to obey the Lord. I want to do what He wants. They don't want to live on the edge. I'm going to do just enough. Or what can I do to still uh, please God? That's not somebody who trembles at God's Word. I think a great example of, of somebody trembling at God's Word is the psalmist, and this was probably King David in Psalm 119. Uh, This is one of my favorite psalms, or probably my favorite, to be honest with you. Uh, Psalm 119, it's one of those psalms where almost, it has, I think, 150 verses in the psalm, if I remember correctly. And, And the reason why I like it so much is almost every verse talks about God's Word in some in some way. And so I just want to read a few verses just to give you an example of somebody who is longing for God's Word. And I pray for each and every one of you this morning that this is your desire in your heart as a believer. So let's start in verse 5. And like I said, I'm going to skip around and the verses are up on the screen. Psalm 119 verse 5 says, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep thy statutes. So this, this is something that I want to keep God's word, thy statutes. He says, oh, that my ways were established, that I was, that I was, my foundation was so established that I could keep God's word. Drop down to verse 7. He says, I shall give thanks to thee with uprighteousness of heart when I learn thy righteous statutes. This is somebody that enjoys to learn about God's word. They don't go to their scriptures going, oh, I have to read today. It's my duty. I'm going to do my devotion or I'm going to read a verse of the day. No, somebody's just longing to do that. Drop down to verse 10. and We'll read verses 10 through 16, a very familiar verse. He says, with all my heart I have sought thee. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes. With my lips I have told of all thy ordinances of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. I will meditate on the precepts, or on thy precepts, and regard thy ways. I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy word. Again, this is somebody who desires to know God's word. They love God's word. They want to study it. They want to live it. They want it to be their foundation couple more verses, drop down to verse 33. We could go through this all day, but uh, we got we got to finish Isaiah. Verse 33, he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may, ser- that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. Again, I read all that to say this is somebody who trembles at God's word. They really care about God's word. They want to do what God says. Again, that's why he says, I treasure thy word. So again, the the three things that, that God is telling Israel that they can do for him, and by way of application for us as well as this, remember, have a humble spirit, have a contrite spirit, and a desire to follow God's ways or to follow Him. So now going back to our text, we're going we're gonna to complete the rest of this chapter. Those are just the first two verses. God now talks to the nation of Israel about why He's rejecting them. Right? He says, this is what God will get. Basically, 
This is what God will give those who reject him. So God's telling Israel, this is what you need to give me, but this is what's going to happen to those who reject me. And in verses 3 through 6, he talks about Israel's worship to him. And let's just read the first verse. He says this in verse 3, But he who kills an ox, and that's talking about worship, right? They're sacrificing an ox. So he's talking to the nation of Israel saying, But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like the one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol, as they have chosen their ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So he's comparing the worship of his people. He's saying, you guys kill an, an ox as a sacrifice to me, but you might as well be killing a person because that's what it is to me. Or he says, you sacrifice a lamb, but you might as well break a dog's neck. You see, this is how he views their religion, their worship of him. Why? Because they're not coming to him with a humility, with a contrite spirit, or with a desire to follow after God. And so God says, this is how you worship me, and because of this, I reject it. So what God gives those who reject him is he rejects their worship. And there's no doubt that this happens in church every Sunday. There are men and women... I pray none of them are here this morning, that come to church not with humility, not with a contrite spirit, and not with the desire to follow after God, but because maybe it's something they're supposed to do. Uh, Their mom or dad makes them come, or their children make them come, whatever the case may be. They don't really come with the desire to learn about God, and they offer up prayer, and they offer up worship, and in God's eyes, he's saying it's like killing a man. It's like breaking a dog's neck. It's like the one who offers swines, but basically God rejects it. It's not beautiful to the Lord because God sees our hearts and our minds and sees what we really are about. And so this is what he's telling the nation of Israel or those who worship him like this, not all of them, that I reject, I reject your worship. And not only that, in verse 4, he's, he says he's going to judge them. Look at verse 4. He says, so I will choose their punishment, right? Because they worship me this way. I will choose their punishment and I will bring on them what they dread because I called, but no one answered. I spoke and they did not listen and they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. And again, this is not just a one-time slip up as I, as I think I stressed last week. This is a condition of the nation for a long period of time. He's saying, I've it's not like this, oh, you messed up one time and God's going to judge you. No, he says, I've, I called them and they, and they didn't answer. I spoke to them and they didn't listen. And they did evil in my sight and they chose to do what I told them not to do. It's a conscious effort of willful disobedience to God that God is saying that's enough. And so God says, if you reject me, I reject your worship no matter what you do. And ultimately, you're going to face judgment. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, the thing that God will give those who reject him is shame. Look at what he says in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at his word. So it's an example to those who are righteous. He says, your brethren who hate you, 
those who don't worship God, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that they may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from a city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. God's saying, no matter what they do to you, I'm going to put them to shame. So again, the three things that God will give to those who reject him in the nation at this time and by application to those who today refuse to listen to the Lord. is And even if you go to church, God said, I'm going to reject your worship. I'm going to issue judgment on you because you continually and willfully disobey me. And ultimately, you will be brought to shame. But what does God give to those who receive them? That's the bad news. And, and as we've been going through Isaiah, you've heard that there's both bad news and there's good news. And the good news is this, what does God give to those who receive him? And that's what we're going to see in, in the rest of the chapter from verses 7 through 24. In verse 7 through 9, you're going to see what God gives to those who receive him is salvation. He says this, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Are seen such things. Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she has brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I give deliverance? Or shall I give delivery? Sorry. sorry. Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? God is saying, I'm going to deliver my people. Right again, they're about to go into captivity. And he knows his people. He says, you know what? You guys are going to go through some hard times, but I'm going to ultimately bring it about. I'm going to make it happen. Salvation is going to happen. God promises in the midst of the nation's trial that there are some he's going to save. Not all the people that go into Babylon will be saved, but some will. And the same holds true for you and I in, in our world. In the midst of our own world, in the midst of the trials, God is faithful to bring about salvation to those who receive Him. It right? doesn't mean we're excluded from hard times, but you know what? God knows those who are His, and He's going to deliver them. So God gives salvation to those who receive Him. Secondly, God gives provision to those who receive Him. And we see this in verses 10 through 11. He says, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her, be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. It's a beautiful picture of a mom nursing her child, providing nourishment for them. And God says, I provide for my people. Not only that, God comforts His children. Look at verse 12 through 14. He says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall be nursed. You shall be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be, be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you shall see this, and your heart shall be glad, and your bones shall flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be made known to his servants. 
but he shall be indignant towards his enemies. Again, all that to say that it's a beautiful picture of, of a God comforting his people like a mother comforts her child. And again, this is all to those who receive him. Salvation, provision, and comfort. And then in verses 15 through 17, the thing that God gives to those who receive him is that they will ultimately escape judgment. Look at verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. So God's saying there's going to be judgment. Even at the time this was written in the nation of Israel, there's going to be judgment on the people and many are going to fall. And even in our world, as we look towards you know, the end of the world, there's many people who will reject God and many people who will be judged. But look at what he says in verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the garden, following one in the center. Basically saying those who purify and sanctify themselves according to God's ways, they're going to go to a garden. It's a, it's a picture of peace and pleasantry, not judgment. God promises that those who are His will escape His judgment. And He concludes, following one in the center who eats swine flesh, detestable things, and mice shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. So again, in the midst of God's judgment, He's going to protect His people. He's going to cause them to escape judgment. So again, what does God give to those who receive Him? Salvation, provision, comfort. They will escape judgment. And they will also receive a ministry of evangelism. Look at verses 18 through 19. So after God does this, He says, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see My glory. And I will set among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. So after God saves his people, now he's sending them out, right? He's sending out the survivors, he says, to all the other nations. And then he gives a list of, of uh, ancient nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant close coastlands that have neither that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among them. So the picture is God is sending out His people to go out to all the nations, the surrounding nations, and to the outer reaches of the world to do what? To proclaim His glory to those who have never heard Him. It's a picture of evangelism. God saved the nation of Israel. I wanted to use the nation of Israel not only to bless them, but to, for Him to bless other nations through them. And he's doing that through the church now, isn't he? After he saves people in the church, he tells them to go out and proclaim his word. And this is what you see here in verses 18 and 19. Not only do they have the ministry of evangelism, they also are included in the promises of ancient Israel. So once those people are, the gospel is proclaimed, the good news is proclaimed to those people, and they receive it, and they come back to the Lord, or they come to the Lord. Look at this picture he gives in verses 20 through 21. 
He says, Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, look at what he says, I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. He's including them in the priesthood, right? The priesthood was only reserved for the Levites. And he said, I'm going to take sons from all these other nations and make them priests as well. I think a great example of this is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Peter writes this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what Isaiah is talking about in verses 20 and 21. As Israel moved out, or God's word moved out more appropriately, and brought in all the nations, he included them in the family of God. He engrafted them into the house of Israel. And so not only is the nation of Israel who believes on the Lord saved, but all the Gentiles as well. And they, what Peter says, are like a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Those were terms reserved for the nation of Israel. It is now included for all believers of every nation. So God gives them not only the ministry of evangelism, but includes them in the promises of Israel. And lastly, He gives them eternal life. Look at what He says as we close out verses 22 through 24. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come, down, uh, come to bow down before me, says the Lord. God is saying that the new heavens and the new earth, you will inherit eternal life, right? Your offspring from new moon to new moon forever. And all people that accept him will bow down before the Lord. And then he closes in verse 24 with a reminder again. He says, they, they shall go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an, an abhorrence to all mankind. He's showing the difference. There's, there's a group of people who will live with God forever, and those who reject God will suffer eternal torment forever. That's a description there. The worm shall not die, and the fire shall not be quenched. It's a great warning that Isaiah closes out with. Again, God offers mercy to those who follow Him, and He offers judgment to those who reject Him. Not only then, but even today, to each and every one of us as we sit here this morning. And so we come to the conclusion of Isaiah, and if you've been with us throughout, you, you will recognize that Isaiah closes just as he began in the early chapters, where he's calling his people to true worship, True worship of the God of the universe. And as I said, that calling not only was for the nation of Israel at that time, but it is for each and every one of us sitting here this morning. 
each and every one of you who are listening to this sermon, that same calling continues with us today. And it's this, as we close, God's word goes out to every man, woman, and child in the land. For all eternity, or until he comes back, God's word will continue to go out. And each and every person will have that choice. As Isaiah issued here, will you receive it? Or you rejected. Each of you this morning have that choice. I, I don't know your hearts. I can't see what's behind the mask, so to speak, literally and figuratively. Right? I could assume everyone here is a believer, but only you and God truly know your hearts. And so again, the question is, will you receive what God offers you or, you, or will you reject it? Will you follow the Lord or will you disobey him? Will you humble yourself before the Lord or will you continue in your pride and do life and do religion in your own way? That is the call this morning to each and every one of us. And again, you have that choice. God offers before you life and death and it is your choice. And I pray that you will choose to follow God, that you will humble yourself that you will offer him a contrite spirit and you will tremble at his word and desire to follow him all the days of your life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, even though it was written so long ago, it is still so relevant to each and every one of us. And it, I pray this morning that it would pierce the hearts of those who hear it. Lord, that it would soften our hearts, that we would be resolved to continually humble ourselves, recognizing that we deserve nothing, that there's nothing that we could do, that we need your help in living this life that you've given us. And we need a bigger and greater help in reconciling ourselves to you by receiving your son who offered himself for us. For there's nothing we could do in regards to religion that would make ourselves right with you. I pray that we would realize that and we would humble ourselves and call out to you. And Lord God, that we would continue to desire to follow after you all the days of our life. And if there are any this morning, Lord, who hear this word, who are not right with you, have, who have yet to humble themselves before you, who are maybe like a Pharisee and saying, you know what, I, I come to church I've been going to church all my life since I was a little kid. And uh, I, I think I'm right with God. I pray that you would soften their heart, Lord, and get them to realize that coming to church does not make you a believer, but giving themselves over to you fully, receiving what you have for them does. And I pray that they would do that this morning. We thank you, Lord God, for your mercy, for your grace that you never give up and continually calling men and women to yourself. And I pray that we would just heed that call. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your gift of salvation. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.